Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We've all heard by now just how important strong relationships are to our health and well-being. But a lot of the common advice and conventional wisdom out there about how to build strong relationships doesn't end up taking us closer to that goal. My guest today, Eric Barker, has spent years sorting through what really builds better friendships, reignites love, and helps people get closer to others. And he shares these research-backed insights in his new book, Plays Well with Others, the surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. Eric shares what he's learned today on the show, beginning with why we're good at figuring out someone's personality from the moment we meet them, but bad at reading their thoughts and feelings, and how to get better at the latter by making other people more readable, as well as how to make a better first impression yourself. We then turn to what makes friendship a unique relationship that makes us uniquely happy, and the two costly signals that most develop friendship. We also get into why friends we feel ambivalent about are actually worse for us than outright enemies. We spend the last part of our conversation on how the modern age is both the worst and the best time for marriage, and how the key to ensuring that yours is one of the happiest in history is maintaining positive sentiment override. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash relationships. All right, Eric Barker, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here, man. So we had you on back in 2017 to talk about your book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. You got a new book. This is Plays Well with Others, the surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. So what you've been doing for for a long time, over a decade, is writing articles on your blog, looking at these sort of these common ideas that we have about success, relationships, work, and then digging into the research to show that, well, these common ideas that we have might not be true. And here's some counterintuitive insights about it. So what you've done in this book, you've taken some like relationship tropes that we've heard over the years. I mean, it's just sort of baked into the, to our, our collective wisdom and try to investigate, well, are these things really true? I mean, the first one you look at is you can't judge a book by its cover. And this is based, you know, basically the idea is that you know you can't judge your first impressions of people. You have to give them a really thorough, you know, look at and chance to really get to know them. So let's take a look at the research on whether or not that's true. You highlight the FBI spent decades and like millions and millions of dollars trying to figure out whether they can judge a book by its cover, whether they can profile people correctly. Has this investment paid off? No. Serial killer profiling is basically pseudoscience. If you give uh, chemistry graduate students a chance to write profiles, they'll write ones that seem just as valid as ones by professional profilers. The UK looked at all of its profiling and said, how often was this useful? And the answer was 2.7% of the time. And the reason an American is citing British statistics is because the FBI doesn't release that data. So basically, you know, again and again, it's been shown that just profiling doesn't really work. And, you know, we, it's, it's basically no different than astrology. And this is a problem that, you know, is kind of writ large is just our ability to read others, whether it be profiling or just, you know, talk, having a conversation with your spouse. 
is very tricky. And we the problem is that we think we're really good at it. Our confidence levels are way higher than our accuracy numbers. Nicholas Epley does research at University of Chicago, and he found that 20, we, we can only accurately read the thoughts and feelings of strangers 20% of the time. With friends, we hit 30%. And with spouses, we hit 35%. So whatever you think is on your spouse's mind, two-thirds of the time, you're wrong. And the truth is, it's, we seem to have a pretty low ceiling for getting better at this. You know, there are things, you know, like motivation that can help us get better. But what I found by looking at the research was what actually helps us really read the thoughts and feelings of others, others better is not trying to improve our reading ability, but to focus on making the other person more readable. Okay, I want to talk about how we can do that, but I want to reiterate this idea that we're not very good at reading people's feelings or thoughts. I mean, this is like the source of a lot of just contention in any relationship. Like you you think someone's thinking this thing and you get upset about the thing you think they're thinking about and it's probably they're probably not even thinking that. No. And this is this is huge. It causes a lot of conflicts, especially I get into later in the book I get into, you know, the issue of of marriage and it can become really difficult when we get overconfident about our ability to to read our partner, especially in a long-term relationship as it goes on, because we start making assumptions. And once we start making assumptions, we're not having a conversation with our partner anymore. We're having a conversation with ourselves. And it's really not that hard for that internal conversation to turn negative where we start making assumptions about our partner's motives, what they did, why they did. And this is one of the things that, you know, that, that accelerates kind of the entropy, you know, in a, in a marriage or in a long-term relationship is not communicating as much, not asking people what's on their mind, but making assumptions. Okay. So we're not good at thought reading the body language thing. What does the research say about, you know, you can read someone's body language to see if they're sad, upset, interested in you, what's going on there? Like unconsciously, we we certainly get some information from that. But when we consciously try to read body language, you know, it's really not that helpful or effective is what the research shows. A lot of people love, you know, body language. Hey, I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. But uh, truth is, it's really not. Because the, in the end, we don't know if the person's shivering because they're nervous or they're shivering because they're cold. You know, so this is even worse with strangers because we don't have a baseline with strangers. We don't know that, oh, they're tapping their fingers. We don't know if that's because they're bored or if that's a nervous habit that they always do. So it's, it's trying to consciously read body language. There's a reason why there's never been a Rosetta Stone for, for translating you know, body language because consistently the research shows that it's, it's just not effective. If we want to find something that's going to give us a better read on someone, we're actually much better off focusing on the voice because when we can hear someone but we can't see them, empathic accuracy only drops off about 4%. When we can see someone but we can't hear them, empathic accuracy drops off 54%. So we actually get a lot more valuable information about what a person's thinking and feeling from their voice than we do from looking at their body. That's interesting. So something you point out though, so we're not very good at mind reading. We're not very good at reading body language. FBI is not, they're terrible at profiling. Yet at the same time, like our first impressions of people are surprisingly more accurate than we think they'd be. What's going on there? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, First impressions are kind of a double-edged sword because like you said, 
we are surprisingly good, generally about the 70% accuracy level in terms of sizing somebody up. You know, we can generally look at somebody, like some of the fundamental personality traits, for instance, like, you know, how a person dresses, how well-groomed they are is usually very indicative of conscientiousness. And on a conscious or subconscious level, we, we, kind, of, we kind of get that. And there's a lot of research in psychology on what's called thin slicing which is that if I see someone, I can't hear it, but I watch a video of, say, a teacher in a classroom, just by watching that for a couple minutes, people can usually predict just how competent that person is at their job. But that's the thing, is sizing people up in this sort of overall way, those fundamental personality traits way, like I said, 70%, we're, we're pretty good at that. But that's different than trying to figure out what's on a person's mind in the moment, what their intentions are, what they're, what they're really feeling behind their eyes. So there is that kind of distinction there. But what's really critical with first impressions is, like I said, it's a double-edged sword in the sense that, yeah, we, we are way above chance in terms of reading someone accurately, in terms of getting a first impression on them overall. However, the other side of the sword is those first impressions tend to stick. And if we're wrong, we it's really hard for us to dislodge those inaccurate perceptions of that person. And, and that's where it's really tricky. Okay, so there's two things we could talk about here. One hand, okay, first impressions are you know 70% accuracy rate. To me, I think, well, I should be doing, I should think more about my first impression because, okay, it, it's probably going to be accurate and it's going to be stuck in that person's head for a long time. So I should probably do some things to manage that. Did you come across any research on whether it's possible to manage your first impression? Absolutely. The thing here is that on one hand, you know, we, we want to make a good first impression. On the other hand, you don't want to give an Oscar-worthy method acting performance all the time. And, and from an ethics standpoint, you don't want to be insincere. So the best attitude to take is to not try and be someone you're not, but to find the version of you that might fit best here. Because we all know that our personalities vary. In fact, research shows our personalities can vary widely, uh, depending on context. We're all someone different with our spouse versus our boss versus our kids versus strangers. And to actually sit there for a second and just think about, you know, of, of the various me's, which is the me that would be best for me to, to present here? The warm, supportive person that I am with my kids, the professional, you know, hard-headed, organized person at work. So you can present a positive impression without being insincere and in a very natural, organic way by being the different me that is, that is relevant here. Gotcha. All right, let's talk about our first impressions of others. So generally, we can kind of see okay, if someone's conscientious, whether they're laid back, whether they might be neurotic or open. I mean, you kind of get that, but that doesn't give you the full picture of that person. So you mentioned earlier that if we really want to get behind the person, like what they're actually thinking and feeling, kind of see who they really are, we need to get better instead of that you know, body language reading, getting that person to open up more to us so we can find out more about them. What does the research say about that? How, what are some effective ways to do that? The first critical thing to think about is you're not going to be Sherlock Holmes. We are not going to be able to passively just read people at a distance. The issue is, like I said, our skills kind of have a very low ceiling. Now we can sharpen them a bit by getting more motivated. Research shows that on first dates, people are more accurate people readers. And the reason there is there's stakes. There's something to be won. There's something to be lost. You know, all of a sudden it's, it's game day. 
So your brain, our brains are generally cost efficient, which I consider a euphemism for lazy. So our, our brains aren't going to kick into gear if we don't feel like there's stakes here. So, you know, get motivated. Think about what you have to, to gain or lose. But beyond that, absolutely. You can't just passively read people. You need to engage with them. And what we need to think about there is not how we can sharpen our skills, but how we can make the other person more readable. And that means thinking more first about context. You know, if, if there's somebody you're trying to get to know or somebody you're trying to get a beat on, you know, meeting over coffee, you know, there's just not a lot of stimuli in that environment versus if I was to play basketball with that person, you know, I would see, do they cooperate? Do they cheat? You know, how do they make decisions on the fly? I'd get a lot more information because of what is affecting them in the environment. You know, the, the other thing to think about is other people. You know, if you were only dealing with someone in the presence of their boss, would you really think you were seeing, you know, the whole them? No. And the other thing that's really critical is, is we need to stop playing it quite as safe with conversation topics. You want to be a little bit more provocative, a little bit more controversial, because emotional reactions, research shows, are typically more honest. You know, people don't usually fake anger, you know. To get something a little bit more controversial, to see somebody when they're reactive, we're going to get a better read on what is important to this person, what they're thinking about, how they feel, what they value. So poking, prodding a little bit is going to get us more honest reactions than talking about the weather. No, and you, so there are some like lie detecting things we can do. You're not actually detecting the lie. You're just trying to, you have to throw people off. I like how you said you need to become a, a friendly journalist. Right. So like instead of you're going to, you're going to kind of interrogate this person, you're going to be Barbara Walters, but you know, a little, but a little more friendly. So I I like, you know, one of the tips you give is, you know, ask unanticipated questions because people who, who lie or kind of like those social chameleons, they know the social scripts and they're just going to, if you just ask them the the typical question, they're going to know the answer to give. But if you ask them like something that a screwball question they weren't expecting, they're going to get, and it's going to throw them off. I mean, exactly. That's the critical thing here is that all the information we generally get on TV and stuff is that stress is, is going to indicate lies, and that's never been shown to be true. And body language has never shown to, in, to, to be valuable in terms of that. What does work is cognitive load. Basically, we want to make them think hard. In fact, telling police officers to, to think of the question when someone's talking to them, instead of asking themselves the question, is this person lying? To switch to the question, does this person have to think hard? That notable that question alone notably increased police officers' ability to detect lies. And like you said, unanticipated questions, a study of airport screeners showed that they could only uh, accurately detect lies in general. Like they only caught like six percent of lying passengers. When they use unanticipated question, that jumped to like sixty-six percent. Because the critical thing here is a liar can't be prepared for every eventuality, everything you could ask. So when you ask stuff that's unanticipated, all of a sudden they're going to have to think. You know, it's like it's like when your computer slows down when it's chewing on a hard problem. And that, you know, again, there's no big neon sign above their head that's going to say lie, but you're going to see a slowdown. You're going to see a wonkiness. The example I use in the book is if you were a bartender and you, you saw an underage person come in, if you ask them, how old are you? They're going to say 21. But if you ask them, what year were you born? 
they're probably going to have to do math. They probably didn't think about that. Now, what year were you born is an exceedingly easy question for an honest person to answer. But the liar is uh, uh, going to have to do math, and that's going to be very visible. So unanticipated questions can be really powerful in terms of just making lies easier to detect. Okay, so the answer to can you judge a book by its cover, is it maybe? <laughs> The answer to can you judge a book by its cover in general is that we all judge people immediately, unconsciously. We make evaluations of people when we first meet them in milliseconds, you know, and we are always going to start making assumptions, even with people we know uh, about our friends, spouse, uh, about what they're thinking. And the key here isn't don't judge a book by its cover because we're going to. We always do. The issue is we want to revise those judgments. We want to we, we want we get the initial judgment and we don't want to stop there and slam the gavel down and make a decision about this person. We want to keep hypothesis testing. We want to keep listening and we want to keep revising those judgments so that they, they can be better and more accurate. Okay. So the next relationship trope you look at is a friend in need is a friend indeed. And so you use this section to explore friendship. And you start off the section kind of asking the question, like, why do we even have friends in the first place? Because you point out that, (laughs) you know, they don't make much sense from an evolutionary perspective, right? You know, friends usually aren't your family members. So there's no advantage to us to invest in them, right? Because they're not going to help us propagate the species or propagate our family. So what does your research found? Like, why, why have friends in the first place? No, it's like you're absolutely right from an evolutionary point of view. I mean, friends, now now people can help you collect resources to help your biological kin, but that would just be transactional relationships. That wouldn't be the deep, warm, loving friendships that we all we all want. And so this and this was actually Dar- Darwin called this his white whale. Darwin felt like if he couldn't solve this problem, then maybe his theory of natural selection wasn't true. He was worried about it. And the crazy thing was, when you read Darwin's biography, the thing he was most happy and proud about that he thought was more important in his life than anything other was his relationship to, to, his, friend, to his friend Henslow. So underneath it all, you know, it really is important to us and it matters. And what it comes down to, believe it or not, because the, the truth is for me as a writer, you know, this, this chapter was hard because there's not a lot of research on friendship. Friendship doesn't get the respect, despite the fact that friends you know, research shows make us happier than any other relationship, that the word friend is used more than any other relational term in the English language, including mother and father. You know, friendship gets the short end of the stick often. And, you know, to really define it, I was initially struggling. I was reading this stuff and I'm trying to find a good answer. And I ended up going back to Aristotle. And Aristotle, 2,000 years ago, said that a friend is another self, which is really warm and, you know, nice, but Eh, it just it just it it might be nice for a Hallmark card, but it doesn't sound you know true. Then I looked, and believe it or not, you know, research the past few decades has shown that Aristotle was right. You know, a friend is another self, nearly at the biological level. Basically, as we grow closer to someone emotionally, the Venn diagram of who they are and who we are in our brains overlaps. If you put women in an MRI scanner and mention their best friend's name, the areas of the brain for self-processing light up. If I ask you, hey, is this trait true of you or true of your best friend? It will take you longer to answer than if I asked you, is this trait true of you or a distant acquaintance? At the closer we get to someone, close is actually a really good word, we actually blur and blend our definition of self between 
us and our closest friends. So it's kind of funny. I, I refer to it almost as like this lawyerly getting around Darwin's trap is, is why would I do things for people who aren't me and who aren't my kin? Well, our brain plays a clever trick that basically, well, I can justify that if I believe that you are me. And that is kind of at the biological level how empathy works. And yeah, as you said, friendships is a weird relationship. It gets talked about a lot. It's one of the most rewarding things in our life. But it's, as you said, it's sort of nebulous, right? And I think one of the things that makes friendship so valuable is how the bonds of it are just so, they're easy to fray, right? I mean, because like a friend isn't, you know, usually you're not related to them. So there's like no like blood responsibility, right? Blood, you know, you know, because they're not your brothers. You don't feel any obligation. You're not married to them. So there's no marital obligation. It's very, it's just voluntary on both sides. And like both sides equally have to be invested in the relationship for it to even exist. And that is like, no, you're absolutely right. What that means is that's what makes friendship in many ways. So kind of the redheaded stepchild of relationships in the sense that, you know, it, it doesn't get the attention. It doesn't have a contract or an institution or a, a metaphorical lobbying group uh, pushing for its interest the way, you know, an employer, a spouse or kids do. But on the flip side, the upside of that is that is exactly the reason why friends make us happier than any other relationship is because it's totally voluntary. It's always a choice, never an obligation. If you don't like your friends, they cease to be your friends. If you cease to like your employer, that's fine. You can keep working there. You can even cease to like your spouse for a while. You don't have to like your kids, but you have to like your friends. Otherwise, you don't spend time with them anymore. So friendship is you know, always kind of stress-tested and pushed. If they didn't make us happy, we wouldn't be friends with them anymore. So friendship may get neglected, but its fragility proves its purity. It's like, that's why it makes us so happy because if it doesn't, it wouldn't be there. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Are you hiring? What type of role are you hiring for? Maybe you need to hire someone to wear many hats, which can be challenging to do. Or you might have a simple position to fill, but it's taking forever to find someone who's a great fit for your company. Whether you need to hire a civil engineer in New York, an attorney in Colorado, a pediatric nurse in Nebraska, or even a mascot in Missouri, ZipRecruiter can help you find qualified candidates fast. And now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. From accountant to zoologist and everything in between, ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds people with the right experience for your job and presents them to you. And then you can invite your top choices to apply. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it now for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness, M-A-N-L-I-N-E-S-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. Nothing is too niche for Squarespace, and whatever your hobby is, you can start a business for it. For example, if your passion is Muzak, I'm talking the music they play in elevators or in department stores in the 1980s, if that's your passion, I'm sure you can build a business around that, and Squarespace can help you do that. With Squarespace email campaigns, you'll stand out in the inbox, start with an email template, and customize it by applying your brand ingredients like site colors and logo. Squarespace's insights can help you grow your business. You can even build a marketing strategy based on your top keywords or most popular products and content thanks to Squarespace analytics. And you stand out with a beautiful website 
It's easy to make in just a few minutes, point, click, drag, you can have a great looking website that's compatible on smartphones as well. Engage with your audience and you can sell anything, your products, content you create, even your time, all with Squarespace. Head to squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use promo code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. So what does the research say about what we can do to cultivate more friendships in our lives? I mean, here it's like, like I said, I was at first I was dealing with the dearth of research. So immediately I turned to what most people would, which be Dale Carnegie. And what I found is that his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, most of what he said has held up. Like most of what he says is actually accurate. The only thing he got wrong was that he said, put yourself in the shoes of, of another person. And the truth is we are, as we talked about earlier in terms of reading people, we're pretty terrible at that. We usually make wrong assumptions and it actually makes us worse at connecting with others. But a lot of the things that Carnegie talked about, like finding similarity, paying sincere compliments, these are really powerful things. The issue with Carnegie though, is that Carnegie was writing this book as a tool for business people and entrepreneurs to make business contacts. So it's generally pretty shallow stuff. It's generally for the, it's great for the beginning parts of a relationship, but this doesn't build the kind of deep, fulfilling friendships that, that Aristotle was talking about when he said another self. To do that, we need to move beyond these. We need to send what economics calls costly signals. Basically, we need to show people a level of investment. And the two costly signals when it comes to friendship are time and vulnerability. Time is always scarce. In fact, research shows it is the thing that friends argue about the most. By giving someone some of your time consistently, that's a scarce resource. You are saying you mean something to me. It's a powerful signal. And vulnerability you know, is something I was terrible at. I'm trying to get better at now. Opening up. You know, talking about your fears and weaknesses, you know, this is information that could be used against you. By putting that information out there with someone, you are, you're not saying, you know, shallowly saying, I trust you. You are demonstrating, here is something that could be used against me. I feel safe enough with you to tell you this. And that's critical. It's, it's really what shows that you care. And what usually produces trust most often is showing trust in others. And vulnerability isn't just important for relationships. It's also important for our health. Robert Garfield at University of Pennsylvania found that not opening up about your feelings, your fears, it prolongs minor illnesses, it makes heart attacks more likely, and it makes a first heart attack more likely to be lethal. Okay. So the Dale Carnegie stuff can help you kick it off with somebody. I think those yeah. are those are very useful tools there. But then you're saying if you want to take it to the next level, you have to invest time, vulnerability into the relationship. And the time factor is really important. We've had uh, Jeffrey Hall on the podcast. He's a professor at I think the University of Kansas, where he's researched how much time it takes to make a friend. Yeah, and I it's made his research in the book. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a lot longer than you think. <laughs> it's a lot longer than you think. Okay, and then and with the vulnerability thing, you highlight there's like some a list of questions. I think the New York Times published this a couple of years ago, and it went viral. Where there's like 44 questions you can ask someone, and it'll make you fall in love with each other. But you're saying you can use these same sort of questions to form a, a quick friendship. Well, not a quick, but it'll help facilitate that vulnerability part of a, of a friendship. Absolutely. It's just this issue of really getting to know someone and going past the surface details. And, you know, a, a critical part of it is just moving past facts and getting closer to feelings. Because, you know, facts are nice, but like 
just by reading somebody's resume, you don't really get to know them. You get to know them much better by knowing what they value, you know, what scares them, you know, what they really want in life, what's meaningful to them. You know, this stuff is on another level. And Arthur Aaron has this list of questions that's really powerful for building any relationship. And in fact, when he first did this research, you know, and was first putting together the questions, two of his research assistants fell in love. <laughs> so this is this is very powerful stuff. And and in the marriage section of the book, you know, I talk about John Gottman's research, which which parallels Arthur Aaron's research, that really asking questions to your partner about deeper, more serious things, like knowing how they like their coffee. Hey, fine. Yeah, that's great. But asking your partner big questions, you know, what does love mean to you? What does marriage mean to you? What, what is a happy life to you? These are tough questions. But when you get those answers, this is like getting the answers to the test. You know, it's like you really start to realize, oh, well, you know, the reason why they get so upset, you know, with me is because they, they see errands as an expression of, of love, doing household chores as an expression of love. And when I don't do them to them, that means uh, you don't love me. Oh, I didn't see it that way. And you wouldn't find out that information if you don't ask them. So once you ask those tough, what does love mean? You know, you can start to find answers and, and routines that honor both of your visions of life. And you can find kind of a North Star that works for both of you. But we really need to like ask more questions of the people that we, we care about on that deeper level because this is, this is what really builds you know, fulfilling relationships. Okay, so a strong friendship, that sort of that Aristotelian ideal of friendship where both of you are just, you're, you're edifying each other. You, you just make each other better. You just enjoy each other's company. That's the ideal. It has a lot of benefits to our emotional health and even our physical health. But you said there's a type of friend that actually is terrible for us, and it's a frenemy. And you actually highlight research that frenemies are worse than enemies. So how does the research define a frenemy, and then why are they so terrible for us? This is work by uh, Julian Holt-Lundstad at BYU. And yeah, it's kind of surprising. We think like enemies are the worst, but the, the thing is that enemies are predictable. Basically that we know where we stand with them. With frenemies, uh, the technical term is ambivalent relationships, is that we don't know if they're going to be nice today, if they're going to be a pain today. We, we don't know. And that kind of being uncertain kind of drives us crazy. It actually increases blood pressure, stress, potential for depression or heart attack because it's this, we're always on edge. And the, the crazy thing is, well, two crazy things is number one, 50% of your relationships are ambivalent relationships. And we don't see frenemies any less than we see true friends. So it can be a really stressful, difficult thing to have to deal with someone where we never know what's going to happen next. And, and this, this, is, this really drives us crazy. Well, any research on how to handle it? Like, what do you do? just avoid those people? What do you... What do you do? Well, that, that's that's the funny thing is that it sounds like kind of like the pat easy answer is get away from them. But the truth is that there's actually really, really valuable insight there because what she found when she looked at it was that with many, certainly not all, but with many ambivalent relationships, we can leave these people alone and often people just don't do it. We feel a level of guilt we feel bad about it, about drawing stronger boundaries. So, you know, the truth is spending less time with these frenemies is a good idea. And it's more possible than you think. We just usually don't try. We usually feel some level of obligation, even if these people drive us crazy. But beyond that, 
uh, I get into the research on dealing with toxic personalities like narcissists. And usually there are things we can do to try and connect more emotionally better on an empathetic level with these people. Some people, their empathy muscle isn't that strong. But if we emphasize, like Carnegie, we emphasize similarity. Like friendship, we emphasize vulnerability. Or if we emphasize community, the, the area we live in, this can help people open up a little bit. This can help people be more empathetic. That can help us build a stronger connection. And finally, if that doesn't work, then what we should do, if we can't, like for instance, for somebody maybe at the office where we can't avoid them and the empathy, the, the tricks aren't working, then the thing we need to think about is making it a clearly transactional relationship. Not that we need to say that to them, but we need to treat that more like a business relationship. What are you getting? What do I'm getting? What am I want? And to try and avoid the more emotional aspects that are stressing us out. All right. So again, time and vulnerability, that's going to, that can make even the, the worst of enemies friends uh, eventually. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about the next trope and it's love conquers all and use this as a springboard to explore romance. And you start off pointing out that the research suggests that our present age, the modern age, is the best and the worst time in human history for romance. So what's going on there? How can it be both, both the best and the worst at the same time? You know, marriage basically started out like you had a lot of rules. It was hard to get out of. You didn't even generally get to, you know, pick the person you were married to. It was a fundamental pillar of society and it was really important and really valuable. And so it was really stable. But it wasn't necessarily happy for everybody. And it really put the it put society before the individual. And it was during the Enlightenment era when there started to be free markets and people were making more money that they were able to have more autonomy and they were able to marry for love. And this made marriage much more fulfilling. However, it also made marriage far less stable. People started to get divorced. And we saw that accelerate through the 19th century until the you know, 20th century where there were just dramatic, dramatic shifts. So what happened increasingly was marriage became far less stable. In the 80s, the divorce rate reached 50% in the United States. It's currently now at 40%. It would be higher, except fewer people are getting married than ever. And what's going on here, this all sounds really negative. I actually have a warning at the, the beginning of this, this chapter because a lot of this is initially starts out negative, but there is the upside. The upside is that due to the new freedoms, due to the ability to, to build a do-it-yourself marriage rather than having to follow the rules that used to exist, if you do marriage right, if you put in the work, Eli Finkel at Northwestern has shown that basically the happiest marriages of today are happier than any marriages that have ever existed you know, on, on planet Earth. And the thing here that's really interesting is that that kind of you know hurts our, our very passive fairy tale visions of love. But the truth is, the research shows, you know, fairy tale visions of love, that actually harms relationships because people expect things to be easy. The benefit of today is that we have more freedom. Eli Finkel calls it the winner-take-all marriage, the self-expressive marriage. If you put in the hard work, if you, you know, really work it out with your partner and do what's necessary, you can have a super happy marriage, happier than any that has ever existed. But the problem is we can't just rest on our laurels because in the past, you know, society enforced all these norms and that, that doesn't exist anymore. But if you do the work, it, you can be happier than anyone has ever been. Well, let's talk about what we can do to mitigate a bad marriage. 
right? Just avoid the bad. And you say that one of the reasons that marriages go south is that negative sentiment override starts taking place in the relationship. What is negative sentiment override and how do you avoid it? Uh, basically, uh, this is some work by John Gottman, is that, you know, early love is totally passive. Like, it just hits us. And, you know, this, and it's one of the most wonderful feelings in the world. But we don't have to do anything. You know, we just, we just fall in love. We can't stop thinking about the person. They can do no wrong. We idealize them. The problem is that that almost inevitably declines. Entropy kind of kicks in. And that, so you could call the idealization of early love positive sentiment override. The problem is over time that dies down. If we don't put in the effort to keep those positive emotions alive, if we don't talk to our partner to understand where they're coming from, as we talked about earlier, you can start to make negative assumptions about your partner. And what can happen is that positive sentiment override can actually flip to negative sentiment override. Basically, this is instead of the idealization of my partners, if my partner does something good, they're wonderful. If they do something bad, well, they must be having a bad day it can flip to, oh, well, the monster did something nice for once. What do you know? Where you start to devilize. You start to assume that your partner has negative intentions. And it, it basically, it just, it gets worse. It gets worse. And then eventually it becomes the default. This is just the death knell for marriages. What we need to think about here, first and foremost, is again, that level of communication. People think that complaining is going to lead to fighting. So we should, I'm just not going to raise the issue. And that's not true. Uh, Gottman has found the complaining is actually a positive because you raise the issues, you get them out there. The negative is when complaining becomes criticism, when you make it personal. It's one thing to say, hey, you didn't take out the trash. It's another thing to say, you didn't take out the trash because you're a lazy idiot. The first works. The second doesn't. Communication needs to happen. Sometimes you're going to fight. And Gottman found that 69% of ongoing marital issues never get resolved. Now, some people might be intimidated by that, but truth is that was true of unhappy marriages and happy marriages. Some things are never going to get resolved. We have to focus on the regulation of conflict, not always the resolution of conflict. And what's really critical is talking, understanding, and then boosting the positive emotions. And what that means is doing fun and exciting stuff just like you did when you first started dating. Well, you call this, this is how you can increase positive sentiment override or just keep it going, right? So you're saying yeah. at, the be- at the beginning of the relationship, when you got the love chemicals in your head, like everything is great <laughs> about this person, it starts to wear off. If you want to keep those positive sentiment override going, you have to be intentional about it. Absolutely. They split couples into two cohorts. One went on exciting dates and the other went on pleasant dates. And exciting one, hands down. As one researcher said, adrenaline makes the heart grow fonder. And this is because of the the psychological principle of emotional contagion. What that means is that whatever context we're in, the emotions that we feel in that context, we will come to associate with whoever we're with. So if it's just another night of Netflix and pizza, you can start to associate boring feelings, you know, with your partner. But if you go out, you go to concerts, you go horseback riding, you go on roller coasters, if you do the fun things that you did when you were first start dating, you can keep those, keep that ball in the air. You can keep those positive emotions and make those associations with your partner. Because the thing is, a lot of people think, oh, we did those fun things early on in the relationship because we were in love. But the truth is that the flip is also true. 
you fell in love because you did exciting and fun things together. No, and you, you got to be intentional about this. We've had a therapist on the podcast, I think her name's Martha... I can't remember her full name. But anyway, she has this idea of marriage meetings where it's a 30-minute weekly meeting you do with your spouse and you break it down by appreciating them. You talk about chores. But then a really important thing is you have to plan for good times. So it's like this is like, this is like good times with you as a couple, good times as a family, and then good times individually. And that like my wife and I have been doing that for a long time. And it, it does like if you don't – I think a lot of people think, oh, if a good, you know, exciting time just kind of happens spontaneously. It doesn't. Like, if you want it to happen, you have to plan for it and make it happen. This is all totally true. Uh, Shelley Gable at UCSB did research and found that how a couple celebrates is actually more important than how they fight. That really matters. It's not obvious and always symmetric. In fact, you know, we all know couples who might fight like crazy or bicker all the time, and we wonder how they can stay together and stay happy. And what Gottman found is that the raw amount of negative in a relationship doesn't mean anything. What means something, what makes a difference is the ratio of positive to negative. And he put it ideal is five to one. As long as there's five positive things for every one negative thing, the raw amount of negative doesn't matter because there's always going to be, you know, negative in a relationship. In fact, Gottman found if it ever hits 13 positives to one negative, that's actually a bad thing too, because what that is almost always indicative of is that somebody is not talking about like what's going, somebody's not talking about the feelings. Somebody's not opening up about the negatives that they're experiencing. Somebody's holding back and that's bad. So you need to think about those positives because like I said, if you do enough positive good things, a lot of the negatives just don't matter as much. And as Gottman found, you're not going to get rid of 69% of the ongoing negative things. So very often, boosting the positive is actually the better way to go. Yeah, so I like how you break this down into increasing positive sentiment override. First is rekindle, and that's like just uh, do exciting things that you did when you are first uh, dating, right? Because those exciting things will help you fall in love or keep falling in love. Then you have remind yourself of intimacy through love mats. And that's just reminding yourself why you this person's great, why you, you fell in love with them in the first place. And then you have renew your intimacy with the Michelangelo effect. What's that? This is a lot of people, you know, try to change their partner. And A, this is usually not effective. And B, it's also bad for the relationship. But there is some research, and they, that's what they call it, the Michelangelo effect, where you can Actually, A, you can effectively change your partner, and B, you can strengthen the relationship. And the distinction here is that usually when people try and change their partner, whether they realize it or not, an aspect of it is selfish. You're trying to change your partner until who you want them to be. And the secret to the Michelangelo effect is to talk to your partner, again, talking important, and asking them about their ideal self. Who do they want to be? What do they want out of life? And then helping, encouraging, and supporting them to be their ideal self, not your ideal version of them. And this is incredibly powerful. When you are a cheerleader for your partner moving towards the person that they want to be, it has very powerful effects. It both helps them become better. And let's face it, the majority of the things that your partner wants you know, are probably things that are positive for you and a positive for the relationship. And this has been shown to work at any age. You know, anybody can benefit from this. You know, it's you, you never want to criticize the failures or negatives of your partner in this process. You just want to be there to support and celebrate when they do start to do the things that are moving them in that right direction. 
And like I said, this helps your partner become better and it also becomes a booster for the relationship overall. Yeah, I like that. And it's called uh, the Michelangelo effect because the reason why it's called the Michelangelo effect is that Michelangelo said at one time something like, every block of stone has a statue inside it and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. And this idea actually reminds me of Kant's categorical imperative to treat people as ends rather than as means. So, you know, your spouse, they have their own end. Like they're not just there. They don't exist so that they're who you want them to be. They're not, you know, they're not just a means towards your own happiness. They have their own end. And so you should help them towards their end, towards their telos. And in doing that, by helping your partner become who they're supposed to be, that that ultimately, you know, ends up being good for you and the relationship in the end. Okay, so to increase positive sentiment override, you do these three R's. You rekindle the relationship, remind yourself of intimacy through love maps, renew your intimacy with the Michelangelo effect, And then you have a final R and it's rewrite your story again and again. Like every couple has a story about the relationship and you have to keep talking about it and telling that story to each other so it stays at the forefront of your mind. Yeah, basically you want to clarify it because like almost subtextually underneath it, you have a story of what your relationship is and your partner has one too. And you want to make sure those are aligned because if they're not, this can be a really bad thing. But most people will say, oh, I don't know. I don't have a story. I don't. It, no, it's there. You just haven't thought about it. Like what is, how do you talk to yourself about your relationship, how it is, how it's grown? Because the, the most fascinating thing is that uh, John Gottman, the researcher, his claim to fame is that he can listen to couples for five minutes and with 90 plus percent accuracy, predict whether they'll be divorced in five years. And the craziest thing, that, that alone is mind blowing. But the craziest thing, how does he do it? He just asks them to tell the story of your relationship. And by that question and that question alone, he is often able to predict whether they divorce or not. And the key thing here, the key thing he looks for in terms of that story is celebrating the challenges, is basically. Does the person look at their marriage and say, hey, yeah, we dealt with some difficult stuff, but oh my God, you know, we, we overcame that. We worked together. You know, it made us stronger. It was really great. As opposed to, yeah, we're dealing with some stuff. I mean, I guess, you know, I'm at, versus that couple that says like, yeah, we dealt with things. Sure. But hey, it's really been great. We really worked it out. That feeling of growth is really critical. Growth, self-expansion, this is a huge concept. But thinking about your story, talking to your partner about your story, asking what the story is now versus what the ideal story is. And then again, you've got a roadmap. You've got a North Star. This is really powerful for improving a relationship. All right. So does love conquer all? It sounds like uh, it depends on what you think of love, like how you define love. Love does not conquer all, but your love can. You know, that's, <laughs> okay. that's, the, that's the issue here is that, like I said, the, the math isn't, isn't always great if you look at it. But if you do the right things, if you avoid the negatives, increase the positives, an individual relationship can really be made to work. We, we just need to really put in the effort because with the incredible amounts of freedom that we have in the 21st century, that means the onus is on us to keep this institution stable. Well, Eric, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? 
The book, Plays Well with Others, is uh, available on Amazon, other booksellers. The URL on my blog is a little tricky for some people. So if they go to ericbarker.org, E-R-I-C-B-A-R-K-E-R.org, they can check out my blog where I'm usually looking at the research to find a way to make our lives better. And the best way to keep up with that is to sign up for my newsletter. Fantastic. Well, Eric Barker, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. This is fantastic. Thanks, man. My guest today was Eric Barker. He's the author of the book, Plays Well with Others. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Make sure to check out our show notes at awim.is slash relationships. We find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you'd think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you to not to listen to anyone podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu.